Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, this sucks. doing i'm doing well how are you holding up good getting excited for april 1st you and me both um i am itching to get out of the house and get in the bush so (laughs) i'm really excited about about getting out even just doing some scouting i mean i think this spring for me is going to be helping a lot more friends get out there i've got a few friends that want to get out for their first time um so i'm going to be doing some of that get the wife out yeah, that's always fun. We uh, I try to get out with the kids and the wife and do some shed hunting um, every spring. So get out and nice. do some of that. Helps me for the whitetails too. Keeps me up to date on what's going on with those buggers. Seems, well, to, be, seems to be a year-long thing where you got to chase whitetails. Oh, man. It's a lifelong thing if you're chasing whitetails, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, whitetails are tough, man. That's like chasing ghosts. It's, well, not that blacktail hunting isn't. But whitetail, I think, is more to do with, yeah, scouting it out and find where those big dogs are at. Blacktail is just, you got to be crazy to hunt blacktail, but I still do it. You're on the coast, aren't you? Yeah. You're in Squamish? Yeah, I'm out here in Squamish. So um, it's, uh, yeah, mostly blacktail in the immediate area or we do some muley hunting. I normally do my whitetail hunting early season um while i'm out for my elk hunt in the kootenays i was out in the kootenays last year got uh, two goats on our way back out we uh i was able to snag a nice six by six so so, yeah that's a rodeo yeah it was a gnarly trip joe uh thanks for joining me today my pleasure thanks for having me yeah so joe i'm super stoked to get you on the show here today and uh you know i know you're a big bear hunter and uh you know a I want to get into talk bears, but uh, maybe before we get into that discussion, maybe you can give a, a bit about your backstory, you know, um, tell the folks who are listening a bit of, of who you are and and, uh, 
and that sort of thing? An elevator pitch. Uh, yeah, let's go with your elevator B- pitch. Small town BC kid. I grew up in uh, Brackendale, BC or Squamish, BC. Um, and I guess, I mean, I grew up in the outdoors, hunting, fishing, mushrooming, all of the above. But my real, I guess, kick in the can or probably what you're interested in speaking about is the fact that um, I... I had a career in professional sports that kicked off through uh, football. I went down to Washington State University. I was on a full ride scholarship down there for football. From there, I was drafted second overall in the 2010 CFL draft by the Toronto Argonauts. Um, with them, I had an absolute blast, a great career, and was fortunate enough to win the 100th Grey Cup with them in 2012, which was an absolutely amazing career for me. Um, unfortunately, following that, I kind of Uh, A lot of my injuries started catching up to me. So I decided to make a career transition, got out of football, went back to school, got my MBA and uh, took on a career in marketing and sales. And that career took a lot of different turns. Um, I uh, worked for an athletic supplement company for quite a while. And then slowly over time, it transitioned into the current role I have now, which is with wild tv network and our three sister networks uh, which is cowboy channel rfd tv and water network and i'm also a host on the edge um, which is one of our top programs on wild tv so it's been quite a wild journey and i've been fortunate enough to chase a lot of you know my life's dreams and uh yeah it seems to be this constant winding path and who knows where i'll end up next i found out a cool fact about the edge um that it's I think it's one, the only, or one of the only Canadian hunting shows that uh, is available to, to our folks down South. Yes. Um, we actually are available in over 55 million households in the U S um, through our various network partnerships. And we're also available on Amazon prime. Um, and some of our network deals actually have uh, provided us with quite a bit of exposure in Europe as well. So it's, it's pretty cool to be able to be on a platform where we reach that many individuals. Yeah, 55 million. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. You got more people down there than you do up here watching your show. That's cool. Yeah, and we pull in some pretty good analytics. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, I, after I retired from pro football, I never thought I'd be on a platform where I reached that many audience members again. And, uh, you know, being able to be in this position and share, you know, my true passion, which is my passion for the outdoors has always far surpassed my passion for football or any of my other athletic endeavors. So, you know, being able to, be in a role like this, it's, it's still kind of surreal. And I got to pinch myself from time to time. Yeah, I bet. So how did that all come to play? You getting, uh, you getting on with those boys over at the edge? <sighs> it's, it was a bit of an interesting journey. Um, I think it probably all started a few years back when Steve Eklund and our co-host, uh, got in some hot water and there was a bunch of controversy around his cougar kill. If you remember that. Yeah, I do. Um, and Steve, uh, I've spoke to Steve. Steve was, uh, he was going to come on the show a while ago and then he had to bail last minute and then we just haven't been able to reconnect, but, uh, Steve's a beauty. And I remember that he kind of got held to the coals on that one. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. For some reason, he just ended up with a target on his back. Um, you know, obviously a lot of individuals go out and hunt cougars and he even did a post about, you know, preparing it. I think it was a stir fry dish after the hunt. And for some reason, everybody just went after him. So, Fortunately enough, um, I was in Toronto at the time 
And through my athletic career, I had a strong relationship with the, the news outlets. So I got a call one morning from CBC and they said, hey, Joe, you know, the hunt, hunters as a whole are just being drugged through the coals right now because of this, you know, cougar kill. Would you be willing to come on live news and defend hunters? Dude, um, I, I was, it's funny you brought that up. I was going to ask you about that because that's not an easy conversation to have. I think a lot of it had to do with what, with what Harper's wife said, but man, you handled that like, uh, like a pro on there. It was, uh, it was a strange conversation for me, I guess is the best way to put it. But, you know, when I woke up, they reached out and they said, you know what, um, we know you hunt and they knew me well enough as an individual. They were like, you could probably do a good job justifying that side of the story. If you don't come on, there's a good chance this side of the story won't be told, you know, like I'm, I want to pitch to the network. You can come on and um, provide your side of the story. So I was like, well, yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll jump at that opportunity and I'll speak up for hunters, but I had never been on a, a hound hunt. I had never been on a cougar hunt. I had grown up hunting in BC and seen cougars in the wild, but I'd never actually actively hunted one. But at the same time, I didn't want to pass this opportunity to have our side of the story be told. So I accepted the opportunity and I had a few hours before I actually had to be in studio recording live news. And I just got on the phone and I started calling everybody in my network. And I got as much information on the subject as I possibly could. And fortunately for me, I had a lot of great people that were willing to have long conversations and, and um, you know, help me out. I mean, obviously I knew the, the, the general information about conservation, the general information about hunting, but this, the specific nuances to hound hunting and cougar hunting were completely foreign to me. So spent the whole morning doing research, ended up on live news. Um, I would like to think I did a, a relatively decent job defending Steve and defending hunters as a, as a whole. Dude, and you killed it. You killed it. <laughs> Thank you. Like, that's not easy. I, looking at that like man and it's like being a hunter like just being a hunter in like you're a target like these days you're a target nowadays you know you know back in the day it used to be whatever right people just shrug it off like oh whatever he hunts puts food on the table now it's like you know they just look at you like they just ostracize you i don't know why but uh it's unfortunate yeah it it was interesting though because that after that interview i actually stepped off and there was a group of individuals from CBC head office, people that work behind the scenes that actually came up to me and said, wow, Joe, like we had no idea about all that information you just shared. Will you come over and have like kind of a round table with us? And I spoke with a large group of individuals who were like a mixed bag of vegans, vegetarians, like just people that never really left downtown Toronto. So it was completely foreign to them. And after that conversation, they, a bunch of them were like, you know what? I may never hunt myself, but I have a full new respect for you know, hunters and what they do. And, and it actually makes more sense. So like, that was my first like real light bulb moment where I realized there's not enough conversation around what we do. We just say we're con- conservationists, but we don't necessarily pursue it or, or go in depth enough at times to share the message. Um, but before I go down that tangent, uh, the question was about how I ended up with the edge and wild TV. So this interview happened um and then my life kind of just kept progressing through sales and marketing and whatnot but then years later i realized um that i just i really had a strong passion to i I needed to get back to bc i wanted to get back to the outdoors 
Um, and eventually I moved back to British Columbia and I saw a position right through the grapevine. I heard about an opening as a host with wild TV. So I reached out to them and I was like, ah, there's no way that I'll be lucky enough to be selected for this. And I, uh, just through a few different calls with some of the individuals at wild TV head office, they got back to me and they're like, yeah, we want you, um, to come on and be a part of wild TV family, but we want you to be a, a co-host of our show, the edge. And I mean, that's like, for me at the time, I'm like that's in the football career. That's like playing community league football and then being drafted to the NFL. Um, it's such, it was such a big jump and a big leap. And it was just one of those opportunities that was too good for me to pass up. So fortunately enough, I kind of just dove in blindly and I said, absolutely. I would be extremely honored to take that opportunity. And, and here I am now. I'm, filming my third season with the edge and uh it has been an absolute blast it's been a bit of a whirlwind but it's been a it's been a crazy ride so far and i hope i hope that this third season is just still the one of many many to come no it's uh that's that's quite the story and yeah working with steve and i don't know if if steve gets enough credit that guy's a killer anybody who follows steve eckland knows that he harvests so many great like and not only he's just built for tv it seems like that guy you know what i mean like he'll he makes it exciting and he's i don't know if he does it deliberately but he'll be like oh i'm i'm on a seven-day hunt here or i'm on a five-day hunt and he always seems to get the animal on the last day or right (laughs) close to the end of the hunt yeah when you mentioned that i was going to say not only is he an amazing hunter and and he's extremely successful but it always seems to be that he gets himself into these cliffhanger situations and he'll pass up on animals that most individuals would be over the moon to take um and i don't know how he does it i mean granted sometimes his success comes on day 17 of a 10-day hunt um (laughs) i think he uses up a few sick days but uh i i i've spoke with our cameraman a few times and and uh they they always say it they're like you know what i don't know how steve does it and every time steve's going on some of these longer trips he'll speak to the camera guy and say you know what like we're going to go for a max of X number of days, but if we're successful, we'll obviously come back early. And some of these camera guys, like they're big trips. So they'll commit to it based on that and say, okay, you know, it'd be great to get back early, but they were laughing because they said, you know what? It's never early. And it's almost always a few days late because Steve holds off to the last moment, but it's like, he knows in the back of his mind, if he holds out one extra day, it's like a guarantee that this magnificent animal will come across. It's he's got a horseshoe hidden somewhere. That's for sure. Somebody told me once my, I mean, and everybody's heard the, heard the saying, never pass on something you'd shoot on the last day. And still to this day, that's, I follow by that motto. I just, I don't know. I mean, I've passed up, obviously I've passed up on some animals, but man, I'm just, I don't have, I guess the confidence, I guess that, uh, that something else is going to walk out and he's going to be a, a Boone and Crockett. Yeah, no, it's, it's tough. And I mean, even for myself, it's a challenge. I grew up, we were sustenance hunters. Like we literally hunted to continue to put food on our table. That's what we did. Um, wild game was a huge, huge part of our diet. We picked wild mushrooms, we fished, we gardened, like that's where our food came from. So um, there was a lot of times where like, if we went out, like we shot spikes, we shot all of the above. And, and the idea of 
you know, let them grow, wait for the big guys was never something like I looked and I'm like, I see a steak with horns right now. So <laughs> I'm pulling the trigger. And then since then, I've obviously learned more and, and I'm much more selective. And I spend, I'm also fortunate enough that I get to spend a lot more time outdoors, which gives me the opportunities to be a little more selective at times. Um, but, but this man has an ability that most people would not like he passes up on animals and he'll just look and say, Nope, like that's an absolute, he sends me pictures when he's on his trips and he sends me like pictures of animals that he lets walk. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, dude, that's like, not just any hunter, but like a very, very, very ballsy, man. It's just so a very selective hunter would take that and still be proud. And he's just like, nah, it's not one for me today. No, it's coming. Just wait. Wait, yeah. wait. I told you. I told you it was coming. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. Pretty sick. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, too, that's one thing. Uh, having time, finding the time to to do it is it's tough. And I know Steve, he's busy. I know for myself, I found a lot more time just with my with my business. It's it's allowed me to to have a lot more time to spend in the backcountry. And, you know, I think last year. I must have spent close to a hundred days, you know, that includes scouting, checking trail cameras and all that. And, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I still, like I said, though, I still don't have that confidence. I don't, I don't know if you gain it or if, or you just have it, but, uh, no, it's something special for sure. Well, you know, even spending a hundred days in the backcountry, it's, you still have to be incredibly fortunate to come across in some of the areas, just to come across a legal animal, let alone like a, a, respectable legal animal and then to be able to go into some of these areas and not only come up with a respectable legal animal but like an absolute like it's like fishing in a mud puddle and you pull out like this giant whale it just sometimes it doesn't even make sense the animals he pulls out of areas yeah yeah and then like with cougars uh spent a fair bit of time cougar hunting this fall and um, back to that conversation about hunting with dogs and you know i i was gonna say earlier i think that's one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have that is when you're hunting with dogs that it's easy and it's not i mean this year i spent close to 30 days chasing a cat and you know a lot of those days over half of those days we spent with dogs and you know i have a friend who trains dogs and thinks that you just let these dogs go and all of a sudden it trees the cat but no it doesn't work like that it's you know it's it's funny how people have that conception of um of hunting with dogs i mean when you hunt with dogs, there's a lot that goes into it. These guys, they're dedicated to these dogs and yeah, it's still, it's, uh, there's nothing easy about it for sure. Nope. Undoubtedly. And I, I think, um, actually way back in the day that that was my first kind of real time time. I looked into hound hunting and the whole process. And from that day, I, I gained this huge desire to go out and be a part of a hound hunt. Um, and I've been on multiple hound hunts since then. And that was the biggest surprise. I actually, even despite, you know, the fact that I had interviewed so many people like, or not interviewed, but spoken to so many people about hound hunting and sought out so much information about it. Um, I still in the back of my mind, just imagined you're driving along the road, you see a track, dump the dogs 15 minutes later, you got a cat in a tree. Mm-hmm. That's what I envisioned. And I went on a lot of hunts where we weren't even successful putting a cat up a tree. The snow conditions weren't right. Um, the cat managed to double back over its tracks and confuse the, the dogs, or it went through a swamp or swam a river, whatever it may be. Um, 
there is so so much more to that process than just finding a track, dumping the dogs, guaranteed treat. Like that's that's not how it works out. And I mean, I went on a lot of cat hunts. I was able to harvest my first cougar this year, um, and I'm kind of glad that it was that much of a challenge to get to the point where I took my first cougar because. I had so much more appreciation for the whole process by the time I was successful. Yeah. I, um, I, like I, I really understood that. And I, I had so much more appreciation for how much work these houndsmen have to put in to keep their dogs prepared and keep them ready for it. Yeah. There's so many variables that go into that. I couldn't believe it. I, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's tough and it's tough to get that education out there. Was, of, and the thing is, I don't think unless you actually do it, I don't think you can appreciate it. Like, like, like you said, no. until you actually do it, like even being a hunter and growing up in a hunter, you still don't understand it until you actually go do it. And it is hard. There's nothing easy about it. Like you said, a lot of people just think, and even people I talk to today that are our friends I hunt with, they're like, Oh, how was that? Well, you just let the dogs go and then you go shoot the, shoot the cat. No, man. It's like, you need to go try it. Like come out for a day and like, just yeah you'd be surprised how tough it is yeah there's there's a lot to it and uh, like you said i mean i it's difficult to understand and to explain to somebody who hasn't been a part of it i went out of my way and sought out conversations with so many people who had done it and i thought i understood it and then still going out and doing it myself it i my understanding was nowhere near uh what the actual process is like and the amount of work that goes into it and the number of uh, another thing I really appreciate is the number of kills, the number of animal kills we came across through the process yes. during those unsuccessful hunts. Mm-hmm. I also realized, um, you know, as a hunter, we understand the importance of predator control, but I realized in some of those moments how much of a positive impact we could have for some of these ungulates in pulling a cougar out of those areas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. that. It blows your mind when you realize how destructive those cats are. And it's going to be a real shame if things turn out the way that certain groups are, are pushing right now. I'll tell you that much. That's, that's another big conversation. Um, yeah, we really have to, as hunters, as not even just as hunters, but as anybody who appreciates the outdoors, we really, right, right now is a very important time for us to stand up and back science-based and evidence-based wildlife management. It's not even just about protecting our right as hunters or, or anything. It's about science and evidence-based wildlife management. That's, that's the fight that we're in right now. So, so it's, it's hunters, it's backpackers, it's fishermen, it's, it's any, anyone who loves the outdoors should be yeah. concerned about what we're up against. And, you know, there's evidence of it right now. I mean, it's funny when you you watch BC News and people are complaining about how many cougar sightings there are all of a sudden and how many coyotes attacks there are and wolf sightings and, you know, confrontations with bears. And it blows my mind that people can even question for not educating yourself to understanding what's really going on and then all of a sudden wonder why yeah it just blows my mind i, I just i don't know i would myself i would never question anything i didn't understand nope, but like absolutely. like you said it's, we it's can get going down the down, down this road and, <laughs> yeah i'm far too emotional of a person to get going on it because i get kind of uh frustrated and aggravated. yeah that's that <laughs> that'll get me fired up and we'll be here for three hours talking. But I mean, I, I see firsthand frustrating things that I see is for example, I live here in Squamish, BC and um, you know, it's an area where we never saw grizzly bears when I was growing up, but this year we had to relocate two grizzly bears that came into town. Um, mm-hmm. So it's because they're, they're coming into town for whatever reason they're coming into town. 
But rather than have what was in place before where there was, you know, a select number of grizzly bears were harvested to prevent overpopulation or whatever, provide them enough space because grizzly bears are extremely territorial um, and, and creating revenue that gave back to wildlife management, that gave back to, you know, research on these animals and, and, and everything rather than having that and having everything properly managed. Now, all of a sudden we're at the time where we're having issues where problem bears are coming into town. They're having to be relocated. And now rather than generating revenue and generating money to keep, you know, these populations in check and healthy, we're spending tax dollars to relocate these animals. And guess what's going to happen? Those animals are going to go in the bush and they're either going to get dropped into the territory of another younger dominant bear. And they're either going to die in battle or they're going to get pushed right back into town. Like that's just what happens. So exactly, we don't, we don't need to go into that because I'll go nuts, but um, huge, huge conversation to have there. Yeah, absolutely. I can't, uh, again, I can't even, so um, we'll back up a little bit here then. Um, now, uh, hunting and pro sports, I guess, well, you know, pro, pro winter, or pro fall sports, I guess, you know, those two don't really jive. And uh, I was talking to Shea Weber um, the end of the summer and, you know, he plays for the Montreal Canadiens and him and I were talking and he was interested in getting hunting and he wanted to know the processes, uh, process of getting into hunting and what he needed to do to make that happen. Um, and he found himself with COVID, he was able to, you know, actually get out this year and do a bit of hunting and, um, you know, that my question for you is when you're playing pro sports, how did hunting fit into that to your schedule? To be perfectly honest, hunting took a backseat. Um, I was at a time in my life where I was, I had complete tunnel vision on my athletic career. I saw an opportunity to improve my life. So I kind of, when I see things, I can be pretty focused and I went, um, full bore towards my athletic career. And there's, there's some stuff where I definitely regret. I missed out on a lot of great opportunities for hunting, but I mean, my sport kept me busy throughout the peak hunting season, which was the fall at the, you know, in my career, then I, I had never really grown up doing much predator hunting or spring hunts. So my focus was purely in the fall. I did get out and, and, you know, uh, when I did have opportunities, I'd try and get out as much as possible, but it certainly took a back seat. Um, and then it wasn't t- till, I kept telling myself, you know, I always have this time I can make up for it. I'll get out on these big hunts. And my, my dad and I used to talk a lot about, you know, doing some big backcountry hunts or these big fly in destinations. And then actually towards the end of my athletic career, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer and very quickly lost that battle. Um, so I was by his side. We, we talked a lot about it and reflected on a lot of things. And, and at that time, I kind of had this mental shift where I realized I wanted to be living a life that I wasn't putting off what I wanted to be doing. And I, and that was a big part of my, um, I, I mentioned earlier that my, my injuries caught up to me, but I could have continued to play for quite a while despite my injuries. But I think there was the injuries paired with this mental shift of getting back to what was really important to me in life. And that's, that's ultimately why I retired and um, eventually made my move back to BC and start chasing what was important. And unfortunately that, that transition happened too late for my father and I to make up on some of those trips we always dreamed about, but, uh, 
you know, I, I like to think that he's still, he's still with me and he still appreciates what we're up to. He'd be proud of what you're doing. And you know, I can kind of relate to that. Um, my, uh, wife's wife's dad, him and I were really, really close and, uh, you know, he died early. He had cancer as well and he died early, but, uh, it was one of those things where we always talked about getting out into the, getting out into doing a, a big hunt and, um, you know, I had a business, so I always put it off, put it off. And I said, well, I can't go this year, next year, next year. And then, you know, he ended up getting sick and we never got a chance to take that trip. And uh, yeah, I kind of, I definitely regret not doing it now when I, when I could have had the opportunity, but. Um, it's one of those things. That I think everybody goes, even if you're raised hunting, I think everybody goes through a bit of a phase where, um, you know, your priorities kind of shift and change. And I mean, eventually we typically kind of complete the circle and come back to a place. And I, I think it's, I mean, obviously I have regrets because of the opportunities I missed with my father, but at the same time, my time away from hunting, um, helped me appreciate it that much more because growing up hunting in coastal BC, I was extremely, extremely fortunate. And I had a lot of people that always used to tell me, you know, don't take it for granted. Uh, but at the same time, when that's all, you know, you, you can't help, but take it for granted on some levels. So the fact that I spent so much of my career being pulled away from it and not having those opportunities, um, now that I'm back here and I'm able to, you know, get back to what's important to myself, I'm able to share it with a lot of people and I have this whole new appreciation for it. And I see why it's so important for me just getting outdoors, whether it's hunting or not. I, I see that it, I kind of, I struggle as a person if I'm not able to get outdoors on a regular basis. Um, I'll go into a bit of a rut, you know? So, yeah. um, I, I think that's elevated my appreciation for it to a whole yeah. new level. Yeah, no, I get it. 100%. You know, that's one thing about being a BC boy and I grew up on the coast as well. And, um, you know, just fishing and hunting and getting outside was just something you took for granted. I mean, here in BC, we're pretty damn spoiled with what we got. And, um, yeah, I'm in the same way. If you don't, if I don't get out, I get pretty damn cranky. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's all, it's probably also one of those things where, you know, um, you've realized over time that, uh, you know, the more time you spend away from it, the more time you realize what you've been missing out on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you also appreciate what we have and, and what you got and, and just to make the time of it when you have it. I, my, when I had my kids, I think that's when I, you know, the, the switch really flipped for me was, um, cause I remembered, you know, same thing, getting out hunting with my father and that's definitely something you want to continue on but absolutely and you're creating memories i mean not only for yourself as an individual like for you selfishly but you're creating memories that will last forever for your children and you're also instilling values um that will mold who they become right like you hunting teaches you so much about life yeah absolutely um, and, and it's yourself. not just yeah not just the basic life and death um and that concept but challenging yourself pushing past what you think your limits are Mm -hmm. um you know perseverance steve's patience <laughs> uh the ability to hold out and wait for what's really you know what you really want to get after different things like that i think it's i think it's it's amazing and it teaches you it also teaches you a huge part about the fact that every action has a consequence yeah um, absolutely which which is a big one and i think a lot of people are able to separate themselves from the consequences of their actions nowadays and hunting is one of those ones where it's very real, very in your face. And, um, you know, if you make a mistake when you're in the mountain, you bring the wrong gear, you're the one paying for it. If you take an animal's life in the backcountry, you got to get it back to your truck. Um, you have to deal with the, 
emotional burden of having killed an animal, but you have to, um, you know, make sure that you use the animal to its fullest. Um, like I know for me as a hunter, when I bring meat home, if I'm eating dinner and you know, someone, I cook someone a steak and they don't finish it. Like, and they're like, Oh, I'll just throw this in the garbage. I'm like, there is no chance in hell you're throwing that steak in the garbage. Like, but my perception of what goes into that meat and where it came from is so much different than somebody who could just go to the store, buy it, never see the animal they had to kill, never have to pack that food out of the bush, never be associated with that connection at all. Yeah. They don't appreciate it at all. It's, it's not even close. When you go to the store and you buy a steak, it's not even close to what you feel when you're barbecuing something that, you know, it took you, you sweated for that thing, you know, you sacrificed <laughs> time away and yeah, there's, there's yeah. You just, yeah. And, and even... you, you pull the trigger on that animal. And when I do that, I have like, when I do that, I have a commitment, like a social commitment to that animal that, you know, I took your life, but I'm going to make sure that that was not in vain, that that wasn't a waste for you. I mean, I'm yeah. sure the animal may or may not care because it's already deceased, but I'm not going to let that go to waste when I already know, like I literally had to kill an animal to put that food on your plate. Like, so that steak is not going to waste. I don't care what happens. It's not, it's not going in the trash. <laughs> yep. That's a big part of it too. And that's something, yeah, you see so much of it. I mean, not with game meat, but just with, with food in general and you're not letting an elk steak get thrown in the trash. There's no way. No, that's gold. An elk yeah. steak. That's, that's gold. That's top dollar right there. Absolutely. I, I think my uncle was telling me about how much, how much elk goes for more expensive than halibut. I would believe it because if I did a cost breakdown on what I spend on my hunting gear, and my <laughs> I don't trips, even want to know. <laughs> I can't do that math. I can't, I can't do that math. It's just, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could be, I could get caviar cheaper. I definitely do not count receipts. That's for sure. Oh, those go in the campfire. Yeah. And I definitely do not let my wife see them either. Smart man. Very smart (laughs) man. Transitioning from football to hunting. Um, you know, they're both physically and mentally demanding. Uh, I imagine, you know, the mental toughness is, uh, that you had playing football, you know, that competitiveness you need for pro ball is, is pretty similar in, you know, with, with backcountry hunting, but you know, the physical aspect, I guess, is, um, the two are probably a lot different, you know, with football, depending on your position, you need to be, you know, big and solid. Whereas, you know, in the backcountry, light and fle- light and flexible are gonna, are gonna benefit you more. Um, how was that, you know, what were some of the, the biggest adjustments going from playing f- pro football to be now, a you know, a pro backcountry hunter in terms of, you know, the physical nuances? The physical nuances was definitely a shift. I mean, um, during my professional career as a football player, like I literally threw around 300 pound men for a living. Um, and we were just clashing in the trenches on every play. So I was on average 300 plus and lifting extreme amounts of weight, putting my body through this ultimate stress, but, um, it, you know, it was bursts. It was energy. I had to prepare for a few hours of competition. And then I had all of this time to recover. Well, a physique like that is great. If you want to hunt from a truck, <laughs> if you want to hunt flatlands, but if your passion is backcountry hunting, everything about my previous build worked against me as a hunter, because 300 pounds, especially the way I was built, I was without being, you know, too 
self-promoting or whatever. Like I was relatively well built as a football player. I didn't let, let myself be a fatty. I was fat enough when I was a kid and you know, I made sure I was well built for my 300 plus pounds during my football career. But yeah, well, you that, know, you're 300, <laughs> but you're talking on a six foot eight frame. So yes. Uh, now a six foot eight man in the backcountry to me, um, you must burn through trekking poles. Unless you might, or either Dude. that or just carry like 20 mil rebar for trekking. I burned through a lot in the back country. I bet. <laughs> kind of the, direct, the direction I was going, but yeah, I mean, trekking poles, you name it. Gear is extremely difficult to find for big guys. Um, because yeah, I mean, even my boots, the average person wears through their boots at one rate. But for me, I've got that much more torque. I'm heavier going in on my hunts and most people are coming out fully loaded if they've had a successful hunt. And that's without, I mean, heck, I'm heavier than most people before I even put my backpack on. But the other crazy thing that I was getting to, as well as for my body type, when you have that much muscle on your frame, you burn an insane amount of calories and you fatigue so quickly. So your endurance is relatively low and your requirement for food is so high. So when I started getting into backcountry hunting, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm huge. I can, I'm stubborn as a mule. I can push through anything. Well, I was burning out so quickly. I mean, yes, my knees, my ankles were fatiguing. My legs were like, okay, I can squat whatever, 600 plus pounds, but, um, but that's only for a short burst of time. Then all of a sudden it's like, no, I got to climb this mountain. And it just, it was this whole new learning curve. I had to relearn my body. Um, and the more weight, the more muscle you have on the frame, which is a bigger engine means the more fuel you need. So it was like this, it was this compounding issue because the bigger you are, the more fuel you need, which means the more food you have, which ultimately means the more weight you have. And it's vicious cycle because then you're burning more calories. Yeah, well, I mean, extra weight. It's just compounding, right? I mean, you're yeah. big to begin with, but big means everything has to be big, right? Big, you know, lots more food. Like you said, a, yeah, a bigger engine needs a lot more fuel. That's for sure. Yeah. So it's been, it's, it's a constant challenge. And for myself, it's funny, my entire career, um, I mentioned I was fat when I was a kid, then I got involved in like a higher level of athletics and I dropped a bunch of weight and I spent my entire professional career struggling to keep my weight up there because my body wanted to drop weight. Well, now that I've retired, my body's really happy at around 280, um, which is not convenient in the back country. So now I'm back to this constant battle of trying to reduce my weight. Um, so I can be a more optimal physique in the backcountry because I, I want to be lighter. The lighter I am, the easier I'll go up the mountains. Training, that's got to be a challenge training because, you know, one thing about when you build muscle is you, you know, it's muscle memory. You always, you always have that. So being a big guy and a pro athlete, I imagine, you know, 300 plus pounds, you had a lot of muscle on you. Now, when you're training, your legs, I imagine you probably go work your legs one day and then all of a sudden they probably look like water balloons, right? Like they're just like everything must just go back to where it wants to be because you did it for so long that it's natural instinct is to just gain mass again. Like, so training must be tough for you as well. You, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's been a, it's a challenge and it's a science I'm still trying to figure out on my own actually, because that's my problem. I like to do some of these lifts and obviously leg strength is important in the back country. And I do have strong legs, so I don't worry about it too much. But as soon as I like, I can walk past a deadlift platform and my legs grow two inches. <laughs> And I don't even have to look at the weight. It just, it just happens because my body is like, Oh, Joe needs to get huge. He spent 15, 20 years of his life trying to get huge. This is what needs to happen. So I, I'm changing my, my, 
my training style. I do a lot more hiking, jogging, weighted pack work, uh, body weight movements. I do a lot more of that now. Um, but it is, it's a constant challenge because I notice no, no matter what style of training I'm doing, my legs want to grow. And I see some of these other backpack hunters and they, they have these strong, but slender legs for hiking. And I look at them and I'm so envious because I, I want that so bad. <laughs> and I see them, they get to, they get to back squat, they get to deadlift and they're like, yeah, this is great. And I know for a fact, if I do that, I will split the seams in my pants on my next, my next <laughs> hike. Like it's, it's just a fact for me. It's gotta be tricky, man. Cause muscle memory is a funny thing. And not only that, just the mental, the, like the mental part of training where, you know what I mean? Like, I imagine you're a really competitive guy, so you can't just grab a dumbbell and be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. It's gotta be all or nothing, right? Like just crank it out. Yeah. yeah. So like just my, that whole adjustment must just be something else. My wife laughs at me a lot because of that. I mean, I listened, I still listen to like the locker room speeches on my phone when I'm working out and I mentally get my head and push myself harder. And I'm not really good at going to the gym and not just going all out. Um, and, and I will admit there's a certain level of ego in it. So I'll go to the gym now and I'm not willing to accept the fact that I'm getting older and I have retired from my professional career as an athlete. And even in those times where I am successful in cutting my weight down and I'm getting closer to my ultimate goal of being, you know, a lighter back backcountry hunter in that style. I'll be at the gym and some young kid will come in and start throwing a bunch of weight on the bar. And I look over and it's extremely difficult to push back the urge to go start packing weight on again and, and try and get back to where I used to be. So it's Dude, this constant battle. I get it. I'm, I'm 42 <laughs> years old and I've been, I played sports my whole life. I am an extremely competitive person. And if I see anybody doing one thing, I'm like, Oh, I just like, Nope, I'll see if I can do more. I know it's going to hurt later, but you know, I just, uh, I totally get where you're coming from. It's tough too. And you're a big guy too. So, I mean, you no know, people look at you and say, okay, well, this guy's going to go, you know, he's going to put three plates on each side and he's going to bang out 12, you know, 12 reps <laughs> on the bench press. And yeah, I get it. It's not easy. Yeah. No, those days are behind me, but there's certainly moments where I, I struggle with it. So, <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. You just have to kind of shift your focus and I find new ways to challenge myself. Right. And, and I have to, continually remind myself that that's probably the best thing that um, I don't want to say the best, but one of the best things for me in my retirement from professional sports. And it, it made it less of a, I guess, mental and emotional impact. Cause I know a lot of guys that struggle quite heavily when they retire from professional sports, you know, with their identity or with um, finding a replacement, because that is such a, um, a yep. direct immediate like you have goals you have goals that are right in front of you you have challenges and it's just this this battle component component that yeah. like kind of feeds something on a on a different level for for us and um yeah it's that warrior's edge that you just yes. you, you need it you need that when you're playing sports like you need it you have to have it if you don't have it you're not going to survive and then you know it's like these guys you they went to war and they have that to get it taken away you need something to fill that hole and fill that gap and you know that's you know talking to guys who are in that situation and they turn to hunting and they find nuances you know something to fill that void uh you know with hunting right and that's that's actually a really good way of putting it and i agree like it is it's a difficult transition i would never compare what we did in sports to, you know, going to war or going to no. battle or anything like that. But I mean, I literally during our great cup uh, campaign in 2012, like there's drives where 
like you're fighting, you're in there. It's very brutal. Like I had a dislocated finger and for one drive, it was 16 uh, plays in one drive. And every single play I had to put my finger back in, it was dislocated. The one finger kept going sideways. Um, and like, you're doing things like this and you get to see individuals around you tested and pushed to their limits and guys, you know, they're literally out there playing with broken bones. You're battling. You get to see people in their core element. Like you get to see what people are really made of. And I could never imagine just transitioning straight from that into a desk job, a nine to five. Um, I just, I think that would have killed me inside. And I think a lot of people struggle because of that when they do retire. So having something that's such a healthy outlet, such as, you know, backcountry hunting or getting outdoors, like you said, you can literally choose to push yourself, whether it be purely mentally, purely emotionally, purely physically, like you can, at whatever level you can push yourself as hard as you possibly want. I mean, there's a lot of individuals that go on hunts that I don't think I would ever be able to push myself to go on. But at the same time, I know that every year, I try and set my goals and I look at hunts and I go, geez, like I, I like to go on a lot that I'm like, I'm not hundred percent confident that I'll be able to pull it off. And I go in with the mindset that I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do it, but I, I want to find my new limits or push past my old perceived limits. That's what I love about hunting. It's that, you know, it's that unknown, that challenge that you can always choose to challenge yourself. And you know, the, the thing is you don't have to choose to do that. Do you know what I mean? There's so many different aspects and there's so many different things about hunting that you can just choose to, and you're never too old to get into it. You're never too old to love this way of life. I mean, you know what I mean? You can be 40 years old, you can be 50 years old and you can still get into hunting. You can still enjoy it and have a great time. Absolutely. And I mean, you're never too old or too young to get involved in the outdoors and the worst day in the bush, the least successful hunt will still teach you so much about yourself as an individual. and in my opinion, the worst day in the bush is still better than any day sitting in an office. And I know that most people agree with me there. So, um, and you know, the worst, the worst hunt is the best hike. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, spring bear is approaching. You're in April 1st. Uh, I already have both my bear tags. Nice. What, uh, what do you got planned for spring bear? Um, I'm, I'm hoping to get out a lot. Um, I think my, my initial focus, I have some friends here in town that have always been very interested in, in bear hunting. I have one friend that I actually got out on one trip with him last year. We passed on a few smaller bears. So I, I really want to help him get one spot in stock. Um, my wife, I always try and make sure that she gets a bear in the spring as well. So that's a great one for her and I to get out on. Um, and to be honest, I think with what's been going on this past year with, you know, the quarantines and whatnot, I, I really want to do a few days back country and go for Alpine bear. I mean, Alpine bears are my favorite, the berry bears up, you know, high country. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, my general goals for springtime, whether, you know, that'll all come together or not is yet to be seen, but first and foremost, I'm just looking forward to having a really good excuse to get out of the house and get in the back country. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Your wife's into it. I just, I can get my wife into coming deer hunting, but there's just no way I can talk her into coming out bear hunting, but it's, it's not for every, it's not for everybody. And I mean, most hunters don't, um, but, and that's everybody's choice, but I, I grew up, I didn't hunt bear. Uh, my family didn't hunt bear. And then I started, you know, and I, I heard a lot of people talk about how 
bad the meat was and they didn't like bear meat. So that's why they never hunted bear. And then, and then I heard from a few friends that had been to these wild game dinners and said, you know what, the best dinner, the best meat they had, there was a berry bear, an alpine berry bear. And it was yeah. so delicious. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I should try things for myself. Cause I've had bad deer. Like I've had bad venison in the past. And normally it's because the person that shot the deer and took care of the deer and, and butchered it didn't necessarily do the best job. So yeah. it wasn't great meat care. So then I was like, okay, well maybe I shouldn't just take everybody else's word for it. I want to go out and get myself a bear and see what I think of the meat for myself. And I mean, my first bear wasn't even a berry bear and the meat was delicious. But it was extremely important. I mean, bear meat can spoil really quickly. So you want to get it processed and yeah. dealt with really quick. And then in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm just convincing myself that it's delicious. So I started cooking it for friends and family and other people. And everybody was like, wow, this is amazing. And nobody would believe me when I told them it was bear meat. Yeah, and, that's and definitely wife, one of the bigger ones is that bear meat's bad. I think, well, the, the funny thing is too, is people say, oh, bear meat's gross. Well, have you ever had it? Oh, uh, no. Well, what the fuck are you talking about then? <laughs> Yeah. How, how do you know it's bad unless you've done it? And, and that's the other thing is I've, like I said, I've been exposed to other meat from like elk or, or moose or, or deer that doesn't taste good. And I'm like, there's no way that anybody could mess up those animals, but it's, it comes down to care after you kill the yeah, animal, like process. how do you process it and do all of that. So through that, through that, I kind of realized, holy cow, bear meat is delicious. And it's actually like one that we look forward to when I pull bear out of the freezer, like it's an exciting thing. Awesome. We're going to have bear meat. And I have friends that, you know, if they're coming over for dinner and I, I'd love, I absolutely love sharing wild game with friends and family and, you know, getting to sit down and share stories and, and share the, the product of those hunts with them. And, and I always ask friends before they come over, like, what do you want? Do we want to go pull some crab traps or do we want to have some venison elk? What is it? And I have quite a few friends that if they're coming over for dinner, they request bear meat. Yeah, no, I uh, I love sharing meat too. And I love sharing it a little too much, but I just can't help myself. I, I looked at my freezer the other day when my dad was over, I pulled out a couple um, a couple elk, elk steaks for him and I, and I, I can see the bottom of the freezer. And I mean, la last year I shot two bear, mountain goat, elk, two deer and an antelope. And I could still, and a cougar this, this winter, and I can still see the bottom of my freezer. So it's time to get busy. That's all it means. That, that's what I was going to say. I'm glad it's, uh, it's March 24th and we only got another seven days till April 1st, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, April, not my favorite time to, to hunt bear. I don't, you if you're going up in the high alpine I imagine you you probably wait till what may to start getting up there and the snow line starts receding a little bit uh I, i'll pretty much i just start i mean i'm fortunate again where i live here i'm right in the mountains so starting in april i'll start going on drives and i'll go on hikes and i'll see how high up i can get um and i try and be like you know the first one to be up into some of these areas so it fully depends on what the weather's going to do but yes typically higher country isn't going to kind of perk up until a little later in the spring um yeah, and i mean what i find yeah well, if I, well around sorry go ahead i was just gonna say two years ago i mean i took my spring bear literally the last day of the spring season but it, it was it had a mouthful of berries when i walked up to it so it was worth the wait yeah. Yeah. It's all depending on, on the weather, you know, right now in, in the Okanagan here, we have, we've got an early, early spring. So, um, mm -hmm. I think you're going to find, and I found, uh, success 
um, with, well, I mean, in BC, we, we really don't have much of a choice. It's spot and stock or still hunting them. And um, for me, myself, I, I prefer the still hunt. I like, uh, I like that. It's uh, archery, still hunting bears. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's hard work though. And without the use of trail cameras, I don't think I could do it. But um, I found the most success with just those south facing slopes um, where there's lots of green, green grass. Um, and, and again, yeah, it all depends on on what the weather's doing if it's an early spring you're, you know it's gonna it's gonna change um what time of the year you can go for sure oh definitely and i mean that's one thing for that style of hunting i found it's always best like you said to find to get into the areas before the full effect of spring is is going you know before everything's greened up you want to get to areas where you know the edges of the roads are greened up the the south sides of the hills are greened up nice but in the trees and the other areas, it hasn't greened up as much. So you can kind of at least focus your attention on a few key zones and areas, and you'll have a better idea of where yeah. the bears are going to be at that time. Right. So I think that that definitely has a big impact on yeah, success that, rates. That's what I found too, is, you know, the South facing slopes where water can get and it can, it can lay there for a bit. And, uh, I, I find too, is that they're really after stuff, the berries, first thing right they're trying to get that plug out they're they're just mm -hmm. trying to they're trying to hit the they're trying to get as much as they can with the least amount of effort at least that's what i find i don't know about your experience but uh you know yeah they seem to congregate more easier to locate um a little earlier and plus there's not a lot of not a lot of guys out either you know there's not a lot of traffic uh, and it's not mm -hmm. hot out yet so um, you have a little bit more luck with during the day as opposed to just early morning and late night. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I mean, a lot of my buddies and I too, we like to go, um, kind of bear hunt in some areas around where we do a lot of our deer hunting as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you always feel good when you, you get to take a nice bear first and foremost, obviously. So you're excited about the bear, but then if you're in an area where you know like earlier that day or later that evening you spot a bunch of does walking around and you're like okay great well i've probably helped out a few fawns this spring as well so i mean all of that it's kind of it's kind of nice to help out that ecosystem that specific area where you're focused yeah. um yeah. so th those are kind of the tactics yeah that we typically use over here when we're picking where we want to go chase but mm -hmm. i always tell my friends i'm out uh blacktail shed hunting but <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> That yeah. that's like finding a needle in a haystack. I haven't found too many black tail sheds in my day. Yeah, that's one thing. When I said we I take the kids out, that you know the kids are looking for sheds, and I'm looking for turned over rocks where a bear's been digging and, and eating some bugs and and that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I just I I just love spring bear hunting. It's funny, you know, same kind of thing as you. You know, my dad, uh, he was just a moose hunter. That was it. We grew up on the north and Houston was the was the big spot to hit so every year it was uh, it was a moose hunt so they never got into black bear hunting and it's just something i kind of got into myself down here but um yeah it's a lot it's a lot of fun you ever try uh calling bears in uh no um i've seen um a lot of videos of it and i actually have a predator call in my backpack normally when i'm out hunting in the spring but um i to this day i've never sat down and actually actively tried to call one in before I had the most luck, but this is a little later on too. I found it when the bears are a little more aggressive, when it gets closer to the rut, um, mm -hmm. I found, uh, I found they work a little better. Like the, the distress fawn or the, the fawn bleak call also works good. Um, but again, I, I've never had a lot of luck with calls during, um, you know, the earlier months when they're, mm -hmm. they're mostly, I find they're mostly just, 
you know, they're all after the green stuff, whatever they can get easy to. I've never, I've never really done the predator calling. Maybe I'll have to try that out. But yeah, well, I, also, I also really like using spring bear as a good time to start, you know, um, getting back into the quote unquote sneaky mode and use it for good training for, you know, the fall hunts and, and all of that as well. So I, I try and get out there and have as little of impact as possible while I'm actively hunting. But, um, it's always exciting at the same time to try a new method. So I might have to put that, put that to use and actually pull that, that call out of my backpack this spring when I'm out there. Yeah. I think the one thing about calling is, is that typically when you call animals, the biggest mistake you can make is overcalling. with bears. It's the opposite. Like it's, I don't, it's impossible to overcall. I mean, you have to call for an hour, hour and a half. And what I found is that as soon as you stop calling that bear, will stop coming towards the call. Like he'll just stop. I've watched bears when you stop calling, they'll just stop moving and then they kind of get distracted and they just, you know, they're kind of like people, right? They're like kids. They just, you know, they get sidetracked easy, but I found for myself, the most success is you gotta, you gotta wail on that thing for a while to, to get their attention. You gotta commit to it, get out there and say, okay, today's, today's whole process is calling. Yeah. But uh, back to what you said about just being sneaky. Yeah. That's, you know, getting out into the woods and sneaking around. Yeah. That's, that's a fun time as well. Just getting back into that mode. And um, that's why I, I love doing the still hunt. Uh, I like walking, you know, the, the logging roads quietly. And again, you find them just on the side of the roads and typically later afternoon and early evening is when I found uh, them to be most predominant in like the mid May and just uh, yes. yeah, yeah. walk, walking along the, the old roads, the forestry service roads and, and just, but you got to be quiet. Cause, um, once they, if they catch your wind or if they hear you, they're gone. So it doesn't take much. And it is amazing how quickly those bears can disappear into like in the middle of a field and they take 10 steps and it's where the heck did they go? Like this giant black blob somehow just disappears. Yeah. But, uh, and I think no, people that, you th- would think that like, I think people think that bears are slow. Like when they run in the bush, it, I am blown away with how fast those things can run in the bush. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would never win it out running a bear. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, no, I, and the, not, not only how fast they could run, but I mean, if you've seen many bears that tree, um, for whatever reason, they can climb a tree damn near as fast as they can run. Like they will get to the top of the tree without breaking stride, run flat ground, hit that tree. And they're at the top of it in the blink of an eye. And it's, it's amazing to think about how heavy these animals are. And it's funny because when you watch them, they look so complacent and dopey and they look like you could just walk up to them and cuddle with them like a teddy bear. But when you see them and they get into this territorial mode or, or, you know, that kill mode and they, that switch turns, like they are unbelievable yeah they're amazing predators like they're machines and and the reason they they walk around the bush and they look so dopey and and casual and complacent is because they know they are dominant and they are that's not that's not a dopiness it's just this swagger and confidence i think that they have out there and they're just like yeah i don't have to be scared right now because i can handle my shit yeah um but when when that switch flicks like you do not want to be on the wrong end of that absolutely not Man, I missed a, I missed a, a dream colored phase bear last year. Ooh. Still, still kicking myself for it. 
but uh, hopefully this year I get after him and he'll be going to that same area. Hopefully he's, hopefully he's a local and he doesn't stray too far. But that's one funny thing about bears is pretty uh, unpredictable critters. Absolutely. You'll have some that are territorial and maybe it's there at a time in their life where they've won enough battles in that area. But then, yeah, exactly. Especially oh, once you get into their rut, you'll have those boars that are just cruising and, yeah. and you never know where they're going to end up. You see them in one cut you know, one or two times and you think you're going to be able to come back to that same cut later in the year and see them and, and they're who knows where they're at after that day. They just disappear. Yeah. A lot of fun, Joe. And, uh, I think I'm going to wrap this up. Um, so maybe you can let everybody know where, uh, where we can find the edge and where we can follow you on Instagram and, and Facebook. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I appreciate you having me on here. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm a co-host on our show, the edge, it's on Wild TV. I started in season 10. Uh, season 11 actually kicks off here pretty quick. And then season 12 is what we're going to be filming starting in the next few weeks. Um, so you can find me on there. And then on Instagram, let me check. <laughs> I'm terrible. Um, so my Instagram is just my first and last name. So it's Joe underscore Appel. So you can pull that up on Instagram and Facebook. Just look me up by name as well. Um, so. I'm always up for a good conversation. You bet. Thanks for, for taking a bit of time and chatting with me and, you know, uh, telling all my listeners, uh, I'm sure they all know who you are anyway by now, but, uh, you know, it's always, uh, it's always good to, to uh, touch base. Kevin, I appreciate you having me on and I hope this is the first of many conversations and chats we have here. Okay. Sounds good, man. Talk later. Ciao. You believe that? Wow. I guess it's all worth it. Yeah.